Good morning. (laughs) If you have your Bibles on you, would you open them up to Ephesians chapter 2? These past few weeks, we've been taking a look at what Christmas is all about, namely the good news of salvation and so far, we've, we've been back in the, in the past, well, all this in, in the past, this was 2,000 years ago right here, but we went back further to Isaiah and we saw the expectation of this good news in the, in the ancient past and we saw the announcement of this gospel to Mary who would bear the child and last week we saw the, the, the pronouncement of this gospel by the Baptist, John, and, and today we're going to see its fulfillment. And we're going to see this in Ephesians 2. And Phil made mention to this of this in his in his prayer. I did mention last week uh, this this analogy of the of a house on fire. That while it's obviously not good news that your house is on fire. Uh, the person who comes and tells you that your house is on fire is bringing good news to you. We don't normally think of it that way, but that's that's what it is. He's he's bringing you this news of of escape, of safety. We would use the term salvation. That's what's going on there. Salvation from the danger. That's what that's what John was proclaiming to the generation. Come and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. The king is coming. And when he comes, he'll separate the wheat from the chaff. And this year, this this week, we're going to jump to the to the other side of this message that, that John proclaimed. Jesus has come and he has accomplished his work. And he has accomplished his work in the hearts of his people. Those of you who believe this gospel, he has done this work in you. And that's what we're going to read of. In Ephesians chapter 2, perhaps another odd text for Christmas, but I don't think there's a better fitting one. So if you have it open, I'm going to read it, these 10 verses, and we're going to see what the Lord has for us here. This is what Paul writes. Says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's the description of the house that's on fire. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. 
It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. Now, we're clearly not going to look under every word in this text. You know this text well, probably. I've been struck this season. I was, I think I was talking to Phil, wasn't I? You were in the office this week, and I was talking about how each Christmas I'm sort of struck by a new aspect of the incarnation. And, and this year, what's really hit me, the reality of, of the gospel of this Christmas message, when we see the, the baby in the manger, you know, we, we, see, we see these nativities set up everywhere. Uh, some of us probably have multiple set up in our house. I think we have two. We've got one that's um, made out of porcelain, and we've got one that's a kid set made out of wood because they have to touch something, and so you have to get one for them to touch. And so you have this manger, and, and we, we drive by it, and we see the lights on the houses. They're, they're all over the place, and I've been struck by this image that's, that's there. What it, what's in front of us, it says it in, the, in the, such a loud way, doesn't it, that that you are so weak and unable to save yourself. How, how weak are you? That's the question that I think the, the nativity asks us. This, the, this picture of a baby in the manger. How weak are you? How unable are you? I'm going I'm to send the most helpless thing in the world to accomplish your salvation. That's, that's the picture there, that this most helpless thing in, in the world. I mean, do you see that? There, there isn't anything more helpless than a newborn, is there? I remember one of the, one of the things that I just didn't understand. You don't, when your moms get this, but dads don't know anything. We don't know what we're doing. And you're holding a newborn and they start putting these mittens on their hands. You're going, why are you putting mittens on this newborn's hands? Because they can't control their own limbs. And they, they will literally scratch their own eyes out of their head. That's how, that's how unable to do anything a newborn is. They can't, they can't use a bathroom. They can't feed themselves. They can't warm themselves. They can't roll over. Uh, certainly they can't speak, they can scream. I mean, when they're first born, they can't even open their eyes. That's, that's the, 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 the inability of, of a baby sitting in a manger. That's the picture in front of us. That's what we're seeing in this Christmas gospel that God is saying to us, you are unable, you are weak, you are helpless. This is salvation right here. And we look at it and we say, I am more weak and more unable than this picture of this newborn baby in the manger. It's what sits in front of us is what we're told is the only one who's able to save us from our sins. That's what I've been struck by this year. And that's what brought me to Ephesians chapter 2. Because this is what Paul says at the beginning of this text, isn't it? We're asking the question, well, how, how unable are we? 
How, how unable were we believers before Christ did his work in us? Were we just inept, disabled, hindered? Look what Paul says. He uses a, he uses a word that can only be interpreted one way. And you were dead. That's how unable we were. Dead. When I was a kid, the most exciting thing that would happen, well, there were lots of exciting things that would happen on a Christmas morning, but when you'd open a stocking and you'd find a pack of batteries, that was an important sign. Because that meant there were electronics coming somewhere in the rest of the gifts. If you know me, you know that electronics are still all over my life, right? But that meant there was a, there was a remote-controlled car, or there was a Game Boy, or there was a Walkman, or something, something exciting that involved capacitors and, and volume knobs and switches and wires. That's what was in there. Have you ever tried to explain to a three-year-old why his remote control car won't work anymore? Oliver gets in these places where he'll, he'll find a toy and then he'll be stuck on that toy for a few weeks. And we've had a remote control car for, I think, a year now, and he just discovered it the other day. And he'll drive it until it dies. And then he'll say, fix it. Well, the battery's dead. We'll fix it. Well, I don't have any more batteries. We just make it go. It's, turn it back on. I can't fix it. Why? It's, it's dead. The battery is drained. There is nothing in there. No amount of kicking it, willing it to do something is going to make the battery work. That's the, that's the sort of conversation that Paul's having with us here. Because our initial reaction is to say, well... I could have done a little bit, right? I could do something. Paul says, no, you were dead. Well, I could walk around and talk. Yes, and he says you could walk. You walked following the course of this world. You followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit. It's now at work in the sons of disobedience in whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We carried out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Yeah, you could, you could talk, you could think, you could do things, but spiritually you were dead. You were carried along according to the course of the world. The picture is you're in a boat floating down a river. You're just being carried along by, by the age of the world. You were dead. There, there was there was nothing in you that could conjure up that, that you could conjure up that you could muster up for salvation. There was there was no amount of, of kicking it or flipping the switch on and off on the remote control to make you do anything. The, the spiritual battery meter was at zero. That's what Paul is explaining to us. That's the, that's the condition that, that we were in. That's what we're to see and to think of when we see this baby in the manger. I'm so weak and unable. 
down to the point that I, I need the most helpless thing in the world. That's what God is declaring my salvation is going to come through. That's what Paul sets the stage at right here in Ephesians 2 at the beginning in these first three verses. That's who we were before salvation. And then verse 4, Paul tells us that God did something. But I love, when, You can tell when Paul's excited about something. He stumbles over his words sometimes. He'll start a sentence and then he will he'll explain what he's going to say. And then he'll give you the conditions for why he's explaining what he's going to say. And then eventually he'll tell you what he's talking about. And that's, that's what happens here in, in verse 4. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He explains all that. And then he says, but God. And then he goes on to explain before he tells you what happened, the reasons why. He says, but God, and then he talks about God for a minute. Before, before he tells us what God did, he's going to tell us the reason why. And the reason why comes down to the character of God. I, I don't know what kind of conversations you have with people, but <clears throat> I often run into people who have objection to Scripture, and it's often couched in something along these lines and you've, i'm sure maybe you've said it or you've heard it you've probably thought it god is an angry god god is a vengeful god god's a stern god he's a difficult god or perhaps this question that lines book covers all over the store how could a loving god allow blank Look at what Paul does to answer that question. He, he, confronts, he confronts it head on. He's already described who we are. He's already described what we deserve. We're in our spiritually dead condition. He says we were children of wrath there in verse 3. That, that is, we were people destined uh, on a course to, under, headed for the wrath of God. And the, and the reason is that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Again, this takes us back to, to Romans 1. We, we serve our own spiritual lusts and we worship the creature over the creator. And primarily the creature that we worship, Paul's talking about, is ourselves. We're the creature we worship. That's the, what we deserve. That's the condition we in, we're, we're in. Peter makes mention of this. Talking about the angels who were not afforded salvation, who, who, who aren't given redemption. And he says that the angels, they look into this gospel longingly because they just don't understand. The angels sinned, they fell, and that was it for them. But what he's explaining here about us is that in the midst of this condition, this children of wrath condition where we were dead and unable to do anything good spiritually, in the midst of that, Paul describes for us the character of God and he says he's rich in mercy. Now, what does mercy mean? The Iwana definition, which is a good one. Mercy means not getting something that you deserve. 
something negative you deserve. I remember I, when I was learning how to write papers, I wrote some bad papers. Anyone who's learned to write a paper has written some bad papers. I was talking with my, one of my professors the other day, and I was just telling him just how merciful he was toward me because I was going back and I was looking at some of these early papers going, I would have just destroyed myself if I had turned this into me. Uh, and I, so I called him. I said, I, you, you are a merciful guy. I don't know if you know that or not, but I did not deserve the grade that you put on this paper. Uh, I, I deserve to be roasted over some of those early papers. God is merciful, but not just merciful. Look, he describes it in this particular way. God being, meaning this is his, the character of him, he's rich in it. He's rich in mercy. That's that God's overflowing in mercy. Not giving people what they deserve. Do you know? I I have no clue. I think about it sometimes, but I have no clue. Do you know what it means to be so rich that you can do something or afford something, go on some extravagant something, most people wouldn't even be able to go on and it not even make a dent in the surface of your bank account. You can't even fathom that, right? That's, that's what it means to be rich in this context. He's telling us that God is rich in mercy, that he's able to be lavish with his mercy in such a way that it doesn't even dent the storehouses. That's how rich God is in mercy. That's his character. And then he gives us the condition, the the grounds for what he's about to explain. He hasn't told us what God's done yet. Notice this. He says, because of the great love with which he loved us. Imagine loving this person who was described in these first three verses. That alone is hard to imagine, isn't it? It doesn't say he just tolerated us, that he looked over it, that it annoyed him slightly, but he he just didn't pay attention to it. It says, with the great love with which he loved us, the great love he had for us. It's the same idea as this rich in mercy. The, The love that he had for his people was so deep that pouring out his love didn't even scratch the surface of the depths of it. That's the greatness here. So we have the character of God who's rich in mercy, who has great love for these people. And then he he goes on to tell us what he did while we were dead in our trespasses. He says he made us alive together with Christ. The the baby that, that we see in the manger, God in flesh accomplished the work, fulfilled this long-awaited good news. He did his work. He died. He was buried. He was raised. He defeated sin and death. He reigns on high. And the work he did in us was to raise us together with him from spiritual death to spiritual life. If you were in him. Think about what Ryan just told us as he was standing up here, where Christ is now. 
seated in the heavenly places with the Father. And then, and then Phil came up here and he prayed for people by name. Ryan said that he's, he's sitting there with the Father, reigning on high, making intercession for the saints. And then Phil came up here and prayed for these people. And he tells us here that we were made alive together with Christ who did this work and is seated in the heavenly places. That's who this God is. He's the one who's rich in mercy. He's the one who loves us greatly, even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Paul goes on to explain that this was by grace that we were saved. Grace is like mercy, but it's sort of the flip side. Mercy's not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. You know, you've been a bad kid today, but we're still going to get ice cream because I love you. That's grace. None of this was deserved. It was all of grace. He raised us up with him, not simply from the grave, from death to life. And he says it was all the way up to the heavenly places in Christ. So he says, where is your position now, believer? Were you just dead and, and now you're alive and you're out there just back at square one to fend for yourself in this lost and fallen world? No, that, that's not it at all. He says that he raised Christ up and he has raised you up with him and seated you with him in the heavenly places. Now, what does that mean? That's Paul's way of saying that we're in a position now where we receive all the spiritual blessings of heaven. This isn't the first time Paul's talked about this in Ephesians. He, he said it in verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Then he goes on chapter 2 to tell him that we've been raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. And these spiritual blessings are ours in Christ now. And I think the, the, the best way to understand it Maybe the most simple way to put it is to say, God is on your side now. We forget that sometimes, don't we? I heard a pastor the other day say that if you're a believer, you aren't allowed to think of the difficulties in your life as punishment. That's usually the first place we go, though, isn't it? Something's happening to me and God must be upset at me. He must be punishing me for something. We can't do that. Why? Because there remains no more punishment for you. Because Christ has taken that punishment on your behalf. That's what it means to be justified. That we stand before God not condemned because Christ was condemned in our place. There is no more punishment remaining for us because Christ has been punished on our behalf. That in fact, you take this a step further, that you are to think of the difficulties of your life, the trials, the, the tribulations, as these very spiritual blessings of heaven. Now, that's really backwards to how we normally think of it, isn't it? But that's what this means. 
To be seated in the heavenly places with Christ means that every situation that you go through, everything you face in life is a result of these spiritual blessings. That means that when he's taking you through difficult things, he is working out your salvation in you, your sanctification. James talks about this in chapter one. Paul talks about uh, in James chapter one. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter five, that the things we face are to make us more like Christ. Even the difficulties that you face as a result of your sin is God working out his sanctification in you. The things that ail you, your sicknesses, your pains are God's way of working out his perfect will in you to make you more like Christ. That's what it means to be seated in the heavenly places. God is on your side now. It's not punishment. It's all good. That's why James tells us to consider it joy. That's why Paul says... These things are difficult, but they're working out endurance in us. And endurance leads us to hope, and hope does not put us to shame. It connects us, it grows us deeper into Christ, where we lean on Him more fully. Makes us more like Jesus to glorify Him. And so we're now in this position so that for the rest of eternity... See this in verse 6. He raised us up with him. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So that, here's the purpose of it. Here's what's going to happen as a result of being made alive in Christ. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The picture here in the Greek is, is of you standing on a seashore and these waves rolling over you. Forever, the, the coming ages, it's this, these waves of eternity, these waves of the ages. And as the waves of the ages roll over us, and that means for eternity, as we stand there forever with Christ, as time rolls on, every time it rolls again, he is going to show us deeper and more fully the immeasurable riches of Christ. Now, what does that mean? What does that look like? At the very least, it means for eternity, we are going to be learning more deeply of Christ who cannot, who we will never be able to reach the depths of. And for that time, he is going to be explaining to us just about how deep his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus is. He uses that word riches again. There's an eternal perspective here as we sit and look at the baby in the manger. Right? The, the fulfillment of this gospel means that as a result, you, believer, we get to learn about the wonderful, how wonderful our God is consistently and increasingly for the rest of eternity. Now, Here's where we find what's at the heart of the Christmas gospel right here. He, he spells it out for us. I looked up the numbers. Astounding, actually. Uh, this, this week, we're all going to be exchanging gifts. You've probably already started. We start Christmas as soon as Thanksgiving ends. 
as it should be. I'm not, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It should start before, but we don't want to roll over Thanksgiving. Christmas starts right there as soon as you get the last piece of turkey in your mouth. It's Christmas season. So you've probably already exchanged some gifts. 2018, there was estimated $1 trillion spent in retail for the Christmas season. The average household spent roughly $1,500 on Christmas. Average. That means there's some way up here and there's some down here, but average was $1,500. Look what Paul's talking about. He's talking about a gift, isn't he? He's talking about a gift that cannot be paid for. It means 2018 looks like nothing in comparison to this gift. It's invaluable. It's the gift of God's own son who secured for us and gave us three things. You know this verse. You probably have it memorized. It's probably stenciled on some of your walls. Verse 8. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. There's three things there. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. Is he telling us God has given us three things? And it's important to understand here what he's talking about because he uses a singular word here, doesn't he? He says, this is not your own doing. Well, which one? The grace or the salvation or the faith? And then he says, it is a gift of God. Well, which one? The, the grace, the salvation, or the faith? The Greek's explicitly clear. He's talking about all three of them as one unit. Which one of these three is the gift, believer? Remember, verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. What here is the gift of God and salvation? Well, the grace, the salvation, and the faith. All of them were alien to you. And all of them were given to you without price, without asking, while you were dead And when you were made alive. That's the gift of Christmas right there. That we're celebrating. That we stand here today or sit here today. Alive in Christ Jesus. Seated in the heavenly places with Christ. Afforded the blessings of heaven. And all of it was given to us by grace through faith we've been saved. We have nothing to boast about in and of ourselves. In fact, our only boasting should be about Christ and his great work. It is not a result of works. You didn't do anything here. You didn't do anything. It's not a result of works. And he did that purposefully so that no one could stand up here on a Sunday morning and say, let me tell you about myself and what I've done. No, there's no boasting. The only boasting is about Christ. The question I have for us today is, is that boasting going to flavor your conversations this week? Are you going to be boasting about Christ and his gift? That's our only boast. He's our only hope in life and death, isn't he? 
That's our boast, that Christ has given us this salvation. Someone asks, what did you do to earn it? And you say, nothing. In fact, I didn't just do nothing. I did the opposite of nothing. I was dead and I did everything wrong. I followed the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the sons of disobedience. I lived in the passions of my flesh. I carried out the desires of the body and mind. And I was by nature a child of wrath. And he gave me his grace. He saved me. He gave me the faith to believe this. And I stand here made alive because of what he did. That's what should flavor our conversations this week and every week. He's not done yet, though, is he? There's still another verse. And it's an important one. He has done this. And he explains why and what we are. He says we are his workmanship. And workmanship is the word that means poem. He's written this story and so crafted us in a particular way for a particular reason. That's what he's explaining here. We were his workmanship. And we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. The purpose of this salvation was not so we could stand here and just do nothing. In fact, because he's done it all without our help, he's put us in a place where all of our work now is freed up to be for him. He's created us in Christ Jesus for good works. God has even laid those out beforehand so that we can walk in them. And so... Thinking about Christmas and, and what's going on with this season and all the distractions and all the difficulties. You know, some, some people, this is their first Christmas without somebody. Makes the season hard. Or there's so much going on. You've got to prep the food. You've got to get the gifts. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. That you miss what's going on. We're standing here as a people who are unable who God, through his mercy and his grace, afforded to us the gift of salvation, raised us to new life, freed us up from even needing to boast about anything we've done. All we can do is boast about him, and he has laid out for us the things that we're to do, to walk in them, to glorify his name, to exalt the name of Christ. Amen. So let's be about that. Why don't we have the ushers come forward here and we're going to take the Lord's Supper. I'm going to pray and the ushers will pass out the elements. Take them at your leisure and um, we're going to sing. We have a, we're going to sing a, a special. We haven't done that in a while. Um, the ushers here, they'll pass them out. Take them if you're a believer. Worship Christ in this. He has done the work. There's no boasting in this. There's no thank you for making me the way I am so that I was able to accomplish this in myself. You were dead and he died in your place to raise you to new life. Worship him. If you're not a believer, let this pass you by. Sit here and think about the significance of this, the message that you've heard. We pray that the spirit would do his work in your heart. I'm going to pray. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for your grace, your salvation, the faith that you've afforded to us in Christ to make us alive. 
Father, you've taken dead, empty vessels and you have filled them with your spirit. You have laid out what we are to do in lifting up the name of Christ and good works. Father, I pray that you would help us the people who are embattled still with our own sinful desires, to put them to death and to do the work that you have for us. May it be lifting up the name of Christ in our work, at our jobs, proclaiming the name of Jesus to our neighbors. Father, being a help in difficult times. Father, may Christ in this gospel flavor everything we say and do. Would you be glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.